Welcome to episode number 15 of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you find a career you love, start a business, and generally crush it at life. I'm Justin Gordon, your host and an MBA student in the class of 2020 at the USC Marshall School of Business. I've had my hand in entrepreneurship and business since 2012 when I launched Just Go Fitness, and now with Just Go Grind. In this episode, I have Chris Lee, who's a former professional poker player, second-year student in the full-time MBA program at the USC Marshall School of Business, and also works as an analyst at March Capital Partners. In this episode with Chris, the first 30, 35 minutes is spent talking about poker, his poker career previously, where he went from, he started mostly in college, was playing there, took three semesters off actually in college to play poker, ended up winning a bracelet in the World Series of Poker, and then transitioned from that into the MBA program at USC, where he tried to figure out his career path, and we talk about all of that, including his work interning at March Capital Partners and now still working there through his second year of the NBA. We get into all of that and more, talking about careers and poker, and I hope you enjoy it. As always, the show notes are about justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show at patreon.com slash justgogrind, and over on iTunes, please do leave a rating and review and subscribe to the show. Without further ado, here is Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Glad to have you on. I know we met at Admit Weekend for USC, and you had mentioned something peculiar that you did. You did poker as your background, and I was instantly curious, like, who is this person? Um, we're going to start there and just dive right into that, because I'm, I'm the most curious to start with about that, because I haven't heard much about your background there. But in that area, how did you even get started playing poker? When was that? Yeah, so uh, hey, this is a story I've told a lot, but I do kind of like telling it. Um, <laughs> So I, yeah, I started playing with, with buddies in high school. It was, it was a purely recreational thing we did. And this was like in 2004 when, when poker was really starting to take off. Uh, they were starting to show it on TV a lot and, and I was gaining a lot of traction. So um, when I was 18, I started playing in some underground games, um, which I have a couple good stories from that. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I also started playing on the internet. And that was actually a time when uh, people were starting to really play online a lot, and it was it was pretty easy to be successful. And I was a guy who who always liked strategy games. I was a pretty competitive guy, and just saw an opportunity there. But I also just loved playing, so I never for a second thought like this is what I want to pursue as a career, right? Because you're not that's not a thing, right? But like um, poker forever, like what is that? Yeah, okay, right, exactly. So, but but I just saw it as a game, as as a, as a video game almost, and. Um, and when I was a freshman in college, I did everything but go to class pretty much. So that involved a lot of playing poker, uh, nights, weekends, things like that. And, and by the time I was 19, 20 years old, I'd started to have some real success doing it. And I actually, so I went to Duke, but I took uh, three semesters off in the middle um, in order to play full time. So at that time, I was starting to travel in Europe. I wasn't actually old enough to play in the States yet because you have to be 21 to play in casinos. So I was traveling to to Europe to play, to the Caribbean, uh, Canada. And then I would also spend some time in Vegas. I wasn't playing, but I also started a, a business that was centered around investing in other poker players. Um, so because I was too young to play, um, but I wanted to kind of be involved in the action, I started investing and, and started coaching people. And that became a secondary aspect of sort of my involvement in poker. Were you just looking, I mean, at that time, so when you're first getting started, going to all over the world, essentially, to play poker, how are you finding games, determined, is it every weekend you're still, every weekend going somewhere, like, 
what was that like? You know what I mean? Yeah, so the, it, it all happened very organically, I would say. So a, a lot of it, you, you end up meeting people in the community. Like still a lot of my, my best friends to this day are people that I met playing poker. A lot of them now don't play anymore or, or play on the side, but, but you, you start traveling with the same people and you always see the same faces at, at events. So then you start finding out what else is going on. There's online communities. There's a, there's a big one called 2 Plus 2, which I'm not active in anymore, but that used to kind of be the the message board that everyone would congregate to. It was like the, you know, the poker for Reddit kind of thing. So, right. um, so yeah, you just find out about events. But honestly, I spent probably 70% of the time I play poker, I played online. That was my, oh, main, really? that was my main thing. Yeah, it was just so easy. You get on there. And the, the, the big difference... There's a couple differences between playing online and in person, but, but the biggest one probably is the speed of the game. So when you play online, it's a lot faster because you don't have to deal with the, the dealers and then the physical chips and all that. And you can play a whole bunch of games at once. So you're, <laughs> you're seeing a lot more action and actually it, it helped a lot with accelerating the, the learning process. Yeah. So I mean, how much were you playing back then? Like how many hours a week were you playing poker? It varied a lot. I was kind of a, an obsessive kind of a dude. So when I would play, I would play all the time and then I would take breaks. I would say probably when I was in college, throughout the four years, maybe I played like 20 to 25 hours a week. Jeez. But a lot of the time that I wasn't playing, I was still working on my game, right? So that was a big thing that, that I think people assume when you play poker for a living, you just play and that's it. But especially if you're trying to play at the highest level, there's a lot of um, just sort of analytics work you're doing, you're, you're, you're analyzing hands, you're going through running simulations, you're talking strategy with other people, uh, you're reviewing your play, just there's a lot that goes into it. And, and you got to work in your mental game too, because it's a big thing. You got to come when you play, you got to come focused, you got to kind of have the right mindset. Who, who are, I mean, what are some of the resources you were using back then to even learn? I mean, obviously, once you got into the community more, I guess the message boards or those types of things, but you, you mentioned working your game outside of playing poker because a lot of people would assume, yeah, I get better at playing poker, you play poker. But clearly, there's more to it than that, especially in the strategy side. Like, where were you even learning back then from, from where? Like, <laughs> so I, I would say there was kind of a, a huge shift at some point um, while I was playing. So early days, which was like 05 to 08, I would say, it was very trial and error kind of thing. <laughs> so that was still when there was a shift from the old school guys, it's like what you picture in the movies, they're in the back room smoking <laughs> cigarettes, like pure gamblers. And then there was a crew of young people, I was one of them, we started coming in and, and doing quite well, but but it was still trial and error because there wasn't really any great resources. There was a handful of books you can read, but they're pretty outdated, right? Because the game evolves pretty quickly. So it was a lot of trial and error. And then at some point, there started to be a lot more of a, of a quantitative focus in poker, just like anything else, right? And and there's started being software you could use um, that you could run simulations and understand odds and, and things of that nature. Um, for me, though, I was always more of a guy that, that learned through trial and error and applying intuition. And I would, I would complement that with, with some of the, the, the numbers and the math, but you start to understand that more intuitively the more you play. Um, you just start to see patterns and, and at that point it becomes less about knowing it exactly. You just more are able to estimate it in the spot. Cause that's the other thing when you're playing, you don't have time to sit there and break that's out what your calculator about. or right. anything. So, <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I mean, everyone had a different approach. Some people were very analytical and very theoretical and I was more of a practical guy, but also bouncing ideas off other people. That was a huge thing. Cause, cause, 
um, in the beginning, I had a, I had a kind of a unique style. I was, I was hyper aggressive, and that was my thing. And there are other people that play more conservatively. And and in truth, to be a great poker player, you have to be able to mix it up. You have to kind of understand, you know, what kind of table am I at? Who am I playing against? And adjust based of that. I only had one speed, which is go go go. <laughs> And I actually learned just from talking to people who had a more conservative approach and then you start to kind of blend those elements into your game and, and go from there. Right. And even, even with that, so you mentioned like a more fast paced approach, pushing it more. So you're, you're, being, you're being more aggressive when you're playing, forcing people to play more hands maybe? Or like, what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah. So, so it, it was, especially when I was young, I was kind of a maniac as far as, <laughs> as, as with, with my approach to it. And, and my thing always was, yeah, I'm going to get you out of your comfort zone. So especially you notice that when, when the stakes start to get higher, people start to think about the money and uh, you know, it's, it's real money, right? So when you're playing poker, ideally you're not supposed to be thinking about the money because it's just representing chips, it's units. You're just trying to make the right decisions and not think about how much you're going to win or lose, right? It's um, like any profession where let's say you're a trader, a stock trader, you're not trying to think about how much am I going to win or lose here. I'm going to make the right decisions. If this is a good trade to make, I'm going to make it right. Um, so my thing was get people out of their comfort zone and yeah, make them play more hands than they want to. Or if they're not, then I'm going to continue to kind of run you over and keep stealing pots from you until there's a moment where you kind of break and say, okay, I can't do this anymore. And then you, and then you get, start playing a game that you're not wanting to play. So it's very psychological too, which is an element of poker that I really enjoyed. I mean, and to that point, how did you develop that specific strategy? So you start playing poker and there's lots of different ways. You could lay back, you could play a lot more passive and you're like, I'm going to be aggressive and like make you, how did you decide that even? I, I think it was, um, <laughs> honestly, I think personality a little bit, but age was a big thing too, because, because when I was, um, 18 and I started playing I, I obviously I didn't have any money to my name and I also didn't need any money right I was just a, a broke college kid you just need maybe a little bit of beer money that's <laughs> it that's it right and and I started doing well enough where I had a, a bankroll to play with where I honestly didn't care if I lost a lot of that right it just all seemed to me like found money so I was able to have a really aggressive approach. Whereas now if I play, I have feel like I have a lot more to protect. So this is now I've been, I've been working at this craft for 10, 12 years and, and I don't want to put it all on the line kind of thing. But when you're 18, 19, 20, you don't know any better. Right. Um, and to me, it was the more money I had, the more I was able to play with and, and the more aggressive I could be with it. And that was just my approach. And, it was working out. That was the other thing. I, I was getting good feedback from it because I was doing well and, and had a talent for it. And, and the, the poker economy was just so good at that point. You know, it's so different now compared to how it used to be um, because there are so many businessmen that wanted to play and, and just people who wanted to just try it out kind of thing. And, and that really funneled the money upward. And, and if you were... Um, really working on your game at that point, you were way ahead of the curve. Right. And even like, I, I assume with the growth of like the world series of poker online, like on TV and everything, people seeing it more, wanting to play more, more people getting into it also would make it more challenging in theory. I don't know how that, if you notice the effect from when you're playing or not. 
Yeah, so so poker is probably it's a, it's a kind of thing where if you play it consistently for a few years, you'll at least get competent at it, assuming that you take it seriously. And like you said, it was starting to become really popular, and it all happened in one sort of wave. To give you an example, the World Series of Poker, the, the main event, um, which is the, the crown jewel of, of the, the poker world, it, it used to get a few hundred people every year. And in 2003, it got, I think, 839 people. And this amateur by the name of Chris Moneymaker won it, which is just incredible that that was his name. He's yeah. an accountant from Tennessee. And the next year, it got like 2,500 people. Then the following year, it got 5,000 people. <laughs> And the following year, it got like 8,000 people. So these were all people that had, had never, basically never played before, right? Yeah. They're all coming in and they're all pouring money into the economy all at once. So you had this once in a lifetime opportunity and it really was a bubble. But fast forward a few years, those people either got weaned out and stopped playing or they kept playing enough to become competent where it wasn't like taking candy from a baby anymore <laughs> at that point. So. Which it's, which sometimes I assume that it, it was based on you, you saying that. Or easier maybe. At to times. some extent it was, yeah. 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 Not necessarily easy, but right. easier. Um, one thing I definitely want to hear more about is I've, I've, I've watched it before, uh, World Season Poker. I played poker. You know, when I was little, I was like playing with the family and I had to be... I had to be able to shuffle cards and everything and be able to play. And like eventually I was playing like the uncles and my dad and everything. It was always so much fun. But even like watching on TV and knowing how those tournaments go, they're long. Like take me through a tournament and how you even stay like mentally focused through hours and hours and hours of play. Like what is that like? Yeah. So one, it's way less exciting than it seems on TV because they edit it, right? So they only show the exciting parts and they don't show you sitting there doing nothing no it is it is a big game of patience um and it's very mental because when you're losing at a poker table it's really hard to not think about that right because we're used to especially if you do it for a living we're used to when we work at a job we're not used to leaving that day with with less money in our pockets (laughs) than we started right that's a big part of working is is you want to make money money it's kind of point yeah Go ahead. And so that's kind of the point of working is to make money typically. So it's, yeah, <laughs> it's a little and, different. If you right. And, and the other thing with poker that's tough is that you can be making all the right decisions and still be losing that day. Right. So poker is a game that's designed to reward you in the long run if you make the right decisions. But in any given day, um, anyone can win. And that's kind of also the beauty of the game. So in that way, it's way different. Let's say we're talking about chess and I'm way better than you. I will always beat you. Right. But in poker, I can be way better than you, and I might only beat you seven out of ten times. And that kind of it's it's great though because that's what keeps the amateurs coming coming in because they you know you can't play basketball against Michael Jordan and win, but you can play poker against the, the best poker player in the world and still beat him that day. And and it's it's what attracts people. So um, a lot of it is is losing at the table, but still knowing that you have to stay focused and stay on track and know that you're making the right decisions and, and not feel like you have to make a drastic change or you have to start chasing chasing your money you know, to try to win it back right away. So it's a big game of patience, it's a big game of discipline, and then it's a big game of focus. So you're playing with the same people for hours and hours in a day and over the course of that day, you start to pick things up on them, right? So you have to be very perceptive and it's not again like going back to referencing the movie sometimes 
they'll make it really dramatic in the movies where a guy is like smoking a cigarette and that means that he's like bluffing, right? It's not usually that way, especially with professionals. It's a lot more subtle, but it's still just um, body language or things they might say. If you can get them to talk in a hand, a lot of times they'll give something away or just uh, their posture. It's a lot of stuff that you can pay attention to. And if you pay close attention to it, over the course of the day, you'll start to realize, hey, like I'm seeing some patterns and trends and and yeah, it's tough. I mean, you get bored, you get distracted, and, and part of it is, is staying focused. Right. And you're just trying to keep, I mean, I imagine trying to keep tabs, obviously to the cards and the hands, but then trying to keep tabs on how everyone plays a certain flop or how they play, you know, do they yeah. do pre-flop or, you know, I'm guessing, how do you keep track of that as you're playing? Are you noticing, oh yeah, that guy on the left, he always does that. Or like, take me through that. So part of it is it, it becomes easier because you, you, don't normally play against eight people you've never played against before, especially if you've been in it for a while, right? A lot of times, if you're playing a certain stake, if you're playing higher stakes, the pool of people is pretty small. So the professionals all know each other very well, um, have typically played many, many hours with each other. So at that point, you already have a baseline of information and it actually starts to get more interesting because you know each other, right? So you know each other's tendencies and you're kind of trying to like one-up them. Like, I know that he expects me to do something, so I'm going to like flip it on him and do something else. And that's when the game gets really fun. With amateurs, it's a little bit different because a lot of times you will not have played with them before and they're a little bit more erratic. So they don't come in with a well-defined strategy. They're like, oh, today I'm going to kind of do this because that's what I'm in the mood for. <laughs> And sometimes for me, actually, it was toughest playing against people. If they didn't know what they were doing, how am I going to figure it out, right? Like I have to try to reverse engineer your strategy. And if you didn't know what yours was, then I wasn't going to be able to figure it out. Exactly. So, yeah. So in some ways, that part can be tricky to read them, at least like from an amateur versus professional standpoint. Yeah. But you have an advantage. Professionals are more (laughs) predictable in a way, but... Their strategy is just so much more fundamentally sound that there aren't like wildly easy ways to take advantage of them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. And when did you feel like you went from like an amateur just playing around to being like, oh shit, like I'm actually kind of good? Um, so my, my growth curve, did it happened pretty early. Um, so 18 to 19, I was starting to do well. And then right around when I turned 20, I started playing in, in some of the, the biggest games that, that are available to play in. And, and it was it was kind of just a stroke of good timing. And, and I think also I, I did have a real talent for the game. So a lot of times I was playing against the, the top professionals who had been at that level for 10, 15 years. And, and I was able to, to compete against them. Um, and I think there were definitely times when Poker is one of those things where as soon as you think you're better than everybody else, you stop being better than everybody else, right? Because then you start getting complacent and you think you have the game figured out and you never really do. It's constantly evolving. So there are definitely times I remember, for example, my last year of college, I kind of um, stopped focusing on it as much. Like I went to, to, to study abroad for a year, for example, and, and kind of was not working on my game, but I would still randomly play and I would get killed. And these guys that I used to always beat started beating me and I couldn't figure out why. And looking back on it now, it was because I wasn't making the right adjustments. I wasn't really keeping up with the advancements in the game. 
basically is what it came down to. Um, but once I finished school and decided to pursue it full time, I was always kind of working on my craft. And, and at that point, I, I felt always like a top professional. And even, even going for that, like you're done with school, you're going to do poker full time. Did you have a, like an end game in mind? Did you have like a, a strategy for how you're going to play? Like, oh, I'm just going to play as much as I can. I'm going to see how this goes. I'm just curious on what you're thinking at, at the time, you know, coming out of Duke. Yeah, I think so. It's funny. I, I never because I never did like um, internships or jobs throughout college. And it was never even something I considered when I was about to graduate I had never really thought about what I was going to do but I think I just assumed that I was going to keep playing poker because I knew I had that in my back pocket and honestly at that point I think just from an opportunity cost standpoint it, it didn't really make sense for me not to play not that I really thought about it that way but but it honestly that was probably the right thing for me to do um but yeah I graduated I actually did a winter graduation because I had taken three semesters off oh, that's right. so I graduated by myself and then all of a sudden I was like okay I guess I'm a poker player and I, I actually moved to LA at that point and um, moved in with two of my buddies who are also uh, professional poker players and um, didn't really have a, a long-term game plan in mind I think I always knew that I didn't want to do it forever just because one advice I got early on was kind of look at people in your profession 10, 15 years down the line, right? And see yeah. if that's the kind of life you want. And, and not that there was anything wrong with being a, a poker player later in your life, but, but I think it, it's still, it's a game and it's exciting, but it's limiting in terms of what you can do with it. And I knew at some point I'd get bored with playing and wanted to, to do other stuff. And I think the longer you wait, the harder it gets to make that transition. So I think I knew I always wanted to transition, but I didn't know in what capacity or when. I just knew that I would kind of ride this wave out while it was going well and then kind of reevaluate a few years later. Right, no, that makes sense. And even like, obviously, you play many, many tournaments, and um, I know you won one of them. It, well, probably more than one, but I mean, one big one for sure. Was that any different than other tournaments? Did you just feel like you're on? Did you feel like you're just getting lucky? Part, like, what was that like winning that? So, what was that exactly? So yeah, this was in 2011. I won a, an event at the World Series of Poker. Um, so you call a winning a bracelet, and, yeah. and it's supposed to be a big deal. But honestly, it didn't feel like it because, um, well, first I want to make a quick a distinction. There's a there's really two forms of poker. One is is tournaments, and then the other we call cash games. Okay. And cash games are when you can come into a game and leave when you want, and you're playing with real money. And it's not a format. It's not a winner-take-all kind of format. Right. You just go play, and then you can win money. And right, exactly. Cash out. And exactly. And then with tournaments, you everyone starts with a certain number of chips, and then you play until one person has all the chips. But they pay out, like, let's say it's a 100-person tournament, they'll pay out 15 people, and it's like a tiered sort of a way, right? Yeah. Um, and with tournaments... It's not that there's any less skill in tournaments in the long run, but in a single tournament to win it, I don't care how good you are, you have to get incredibly lucky. Right? You have to have the right cards at the right time and, and everything has to, to kind of fit together. And when you're doing it, you're not really even realizing how lucky you're getting because you're so focused on, on, on what's going on that you, you're not kind of taking a step back to realize like, hey, like I just keep winning all these chips. 
So I remember when I was going through that process, and it was four days, and the other thing is you're just getting exhausted, right? Like four days? You're playing like 14 hours a day, and you're basically a zombie because you're, you're holed up in a, in a room, and, and you're just sitting all day. 14-hour days. Oh my yeah, 12 to 14-hour days, and you're not eating like quality food, and you're, just, you're not getting workouts, and it's, it's tough. Um, but when you're done with it, it's, it's just sort of, for me, it did feel a little bit... I want to say surreal just because when you enter a tournament, you never think you're going to win it. Like this one had probably 500 people. Um, and you just don't think you're going to be that one out of 500 until you are. And then you're like, how did this just happen? You <laughs> you're know? like, oh my God. <laughs> so it was a great feeling. But but honestly, it was more, I think that gave me external validation. Like people who didn't know anything about poker, but they, they heard of the World Series of Poker. So, you know, I played cash games. That was kind of my thing. That's what a lot of the, the, the professionals really focus on. But there's no credibility to that. People don't know how you're doing in that necessarily or, or care to know. But when you win a tournament, people who aren't in the industry kind of can understand, hey, this is a tournament. You know, it's like anything else, right? So. Right. I mean, even from that perspective, so you, you win a bracelet and this, it wasn't Texas Hold'em, was it? It was some... Was it no, like it, was, it was 10 different games. 10 different games. Yeah. So, so poker's um, played in... All these different formats and i think most people know texas hold'em that's right. by far the most popular um it's what usually is televised but when you play especially at higher stakes a lot of times you end up playing multiple games because if you're a specialist in one format and i'm a specialist in another mm-hmm. i'm not going to want to play you at your game and you're not going to want to play me at my game right so how do we compromise well let's play some of your game and some of my game so there's actually some fun negotiations that happen. You're at, you're at a table, there's a, a bunch of you, and, and you have to figure out what mix of games you're going to play. And sometimes you end up playing like six different games. It's, it's sort of a way to handicap, right? Right, okay. That, that's yeah. basically how you think of it. So in tournaments, typically it's Hold'em. That's, that's what's popular. But again, same kind of thing. A 10-game format that's, that's sometimes played in high-stakes cash games. And this was the first year they offered this variant at the world series of poker and at that time i actually didn't really know how to play some of these games i mean i knew the fundamentals if you know how to play poker you can take some of that strategy and apply it to any game but i was learning a little bit on the fly so i was surprised this is definitely not the tournament that i thought i was going to (laughs) win right so you're doing all different types of how does that work so did it rotate which game you play? Yeah, so game? you play like half an hour of one game and then the half time. an hour of the next game. They'll do it different ways. They might do it like number of hands and then switch or like amount of time and switch. But yeah, basically it's a rotation. Okay, so then rotate through the games and then you won the whole tournament. It's obviously same chips and everything, just rotating games. Exactly. Keep playing the whole thing. Okay. Right. Jeez, that's going to that's gonna be fun in some ways, I guess. Like It too, is. But... It, it, it keeps things fresh. Yeah, you know, sometimes playing one game can get boring. So yeah, you know. for 12, 14 hours, the same right. game could could potentially. And you also mentioned so um, you did some like, consulting type of thing, and like also supported some other poker players. What was that experience like? What were you doing in that regard? Yeah, so that's a pretty common thing that happens in the poker world. There's sometimes a need for capital. So let's say you're a very good poker player, but for one reason or another, you don't necessarily have uh, the sufficient amount of capital to play in certain games. Might just be that you have to support a family, or might just be that you have some bad money management skills outside of poker. Sure, any number of things, right? So um, there's a market for it for sure. Um, and so I identified guys that were 
talented. A lot of times it was actually guys that were up and coming poker players and that wanted to do it professionally or they were doing it professionally, but they wanted to kind of take their game to the next level. And um, I had a background in, in high school and a little bit into college of, of, of teaching and tutoring. I ran a tutoring business in high school um, and loved it. And, and I was actually for a brief while um, involved with a online poker training site. So I made videos. Okay. I, I made videos and I recorded it and I did a voiceover and explained, you know, what's going on and talk about strategy and, and really loved teaching the game of poker and, and knew that there was kind of an opportunity to invest in people and then, and then help them along. And that was kind of, um, a good way for me to add value to my investments as well. And, so that became a thing that that I did for several years. Um, it started out very badly because I didn't know how to say no. So people would approach me and say, "Hey, I want you to 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 stake me." That's what we call it, or right? stake me for this tournament and that tournament. I'd be like, "Okay, you seem like a credible guy." And and I got burned in multiple ways. One because I was investing in guys that weren't qualified, and then also guys who were shady, essentially, right? So. You know, you're like a naive 21-year-old. You got to sometimes just pay to learn your lessons. But it was actually a really good way to... Because that's the other thing in poker. You don't have contracts. You don't have lawyers. It's all word of mouth and it's all reputation-based. Yeah. Which is not a bad system ultimately because if you start burning people, you get known and you get blackballed, right? So the people that last in the industry are people that have good, solid reputations. But when you're a newcomer in the scene and you're a young kid and you look like it's easy to take advantage of you, you'll have these people coming out of the woodwork and trying to take advantage of you. And, and that ha- definitely happened to me a, a handful of times. But once I kind of figured out what, who are the right kinds of people to invest in and, and how strict do I need to be with letting them play uh, certain games or, or just be, be a little bit more uh, regimented about the whole thing. And once I started doing that, it actually uh, started to go quite well. And how many people were you working with at that time? Probably over the course of um, my poker career, maybe 10 to 12 different people. Okay. Um, and I had some guys that I worked with for, for many years. Oh, really? So, okay, so long-term kind of relationships with some of these people. Yeah, and, and I thought that that was a really good way also to... Because I didn't just want to invest in you short-term and then and then call it a day that didn't make sense to me because if i was going to help you also become a better poker player i wanted to see the rewards mutual rewards from that long term and it just made sense to work together and i found some trustworthy guys and guys that i became really good friends with and and it was a partnership and you learn too because when you're you know they always say like to the best way to learn something is to teach it right so for me a lot of times going over the concepts and, and and saying it out loud and working through it helped me in my personal game too right so it wasn't just a one-way thing. And you, met, you mentioned the like tutoring in, in high school even. I didn't know about that. So how did that start, your own tutoring kind of business thing? Yeah, so I, I don't know. When I was in high school, I was always just scheming to like figure out how to, to be like a little entrepreneur. So I, had, I remember when I was a freshman, I started like selling random junk I had on eBay. It was nice. like early days of oh, eBay. Yeah. And then I realized there's like a little market where you can like buy and sell stuff on eBay. So I was like... I was trying to do that for for a bit, and and I was I was working random odd jobs, but but I um I ended up getting a referral to tutor somebody who was like a family friend of ours, I think, and he was really struggling in I want to say like geometry, and I was a pretty good math guy in high school, so I was tutoring him, and I was making really good money. It was like twenty an hour, yeah. 
which when you're in high school is just incredible, oh, right? Rolling so, a deal, yeah. Yeah, it's straight cash. <laughs> it's great. And and I think he, he, he really liked working with me. And, and so he started referring a couple of his friends. And then it just kind of grew from there. I took out an ad in the paper and, and realized like sometimes there were classes that I didn't even do that well in, but to teach it, Sometimes if you know something so well, I almost think it's you're not the right kind of teacher. It's harder because, to teach it. Yeah, you have to be able to get down on their levels. Mm-hmm. If you're close to that, then it, it becomes easier. And, and I had a good way of kind of being able to communicate some of the concepts and and uh, kind of made a business out of it. So my senior year of high school, I was probably tutoring like six, seven different kids Jeez. and had a nice little thing going. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's one of those things Like, even I think of entrepreneurship and what that means for different people. It can be so many different things. Whatever, a service is the easiest job to start if you want to be an entrepreneur. Offering a service it just takes your time, right? Obviously, everyone wants to like, sell a product and make this like huge, massive company. But entrepreneurship can be a lot, a lot of things. And even to that point, I did like personal training, my own personal training business, like offering sessions to clients like in-home in Milwaukee. And that was one of the same type of things. Like at that time, it's like, yeah, you can make 60, 70, $80 an hour for personal training. And I I loved it. it was e- like, it was easy to me. Like it wasn't that complicated. I knew fitness very well, had a degree in it. And then you just worked with clients. and was like, oh, this is, this is great. Because it's just an easy thing to start. But many people like maybe don't know the first steps or kind of afraid to. But, for sure. But it's nice that you, you did that even in high school. That's crazy, right? Well, and especially because I'm sure you can relate to this. Now that we're, we're in business school, right. it always seems like it's sort of like go for a home run. You got to do this venture, crazy venture back startup. You want to be the next Zuckerberg. And that's it's cool to, to shoot for that. But that's not really realistic, right? A lot of times, yeah, you're right. The best businesses are, are small ones where you're getting some good generating good income and, and are able to do it kind of with something that you're passionate about. Actually making profit, which is something. <laughs> right, yeah, which is something that if you're venture back, you don't have to worry about that. So. Yeah, they're just like users. We have lots and lots of users. It's right. going great. How much revenue do you need? No revenue, just users. But yep. that's, I mean, it's just a different business model. But, sure. And to that point, though, obviously say you didn't want to play poker necessarily forever. Even when I talked to you at Admit Weekend, you're like, yeah, that was kind of how I jumped in the MBA, but take me through that process. Like when did you get to the point where you're like, okay, I want to get an MBA actually. Right. So, so yeah, I graduated college in 2010 and I started my MBA in 2017. So there's a six and a half year gap where I was playing poker. And I think probably the first four years I was totally happy doing it. Um, I was living a great lifestyle. I was actually living abroad for a couple of years, um, which was a great experience. But I think once some of that, went away and the freedom became less desirable because it's like anything else. If you have all this freedom and flexibility, it seems great. But after a while, you're like, okay, I could actually use a little structure like in my life. And, and I wasn't having any of that. And, and poker was starting to um, become a, a tougher economy. I mean, I was still doing well, but I, I realized that moving forward, it was going to continue to get tougher there was a lot of uh, innovation in terms of people building bots and algorithms in order to try to solve the game. You know, I'm sure you've heard about like chess is, you know, Google is doing the AlphaGo and yeah. AlphaGo Zero and all that stuff. And, and, and poker is trending in the right th- same direction. And, you know, I saw, I think, the, the writing on the wall to a certain extent and, and kind of started thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I think I'd always said that I would play poker um, until I was... Um, in a great financial position and then I would transition to starting my own business. And when it came time where I thought about leaving poker, I, I didn't really 
know what business I wanted to start. I had no skills in it. I didn't, you know what I mean? Like you play poker though. Yeah, it just, it sounds great. But then when you actually have to try to make something happen, you realize that you're, you know, way over your head basically. Yeah. And that's the position I was in and, and just started doing a little bit of research and, and, and thinking, what can I do? And at the time I was living in San Diego and, and I kind of always had knew I wanted to move up to LA. I lived in LA for like six months after college and then I had to leave, but but knew I wanted to come back and, and thought, why not business school? And it was sort of an idea I had overnight and and it, it started to, to build and I very quickly went, I remember it was like November when I was like, oh, why don't I look at some business schools? And then I got my applications in, in January and, and didn't really have a, a plan, like what I wanted to focus on. And I've been talking with, you know, I'm in my second year now and I've been talking with some other second years and talking about how how impressed I am with, with you and your first year, obviously, and with a lot of the first years. And then you guys have come in with such a specific focus and you know what you want to do and you're, you're going and getting it. And when I was starting, I, I really, I had no clue. I was just like, I'm going to go to this and go to that and just kind of see for myself. And I had no, or very limited real world experience. So I think it was, um, I knew it was going to be an experimental phase of, of two years. And, and if things didn't work out, I, I knew that, that I could always go back to playing poker and, and, and do something in business on the side. But ideally, my goal was to find my next passion because p- poker was something that I stopped being like truly passionate about. Right, at the same level. I mean, were you looking... So back then, you wanted to get an MBA. You were in LA already at the time, right? Or were you No, I was in San Diego and then I was briefly in Newport Beach. Yeah. Okay, so close. But yeah, so... Were you looking everywhere for MBAs? I'm just curious. Like, no, I, I was only just... looking in LA and DC. Oh, okay. So I'm from DC originally. That's where my family's in. Um, okay. And so I knew sort of realistically the only places, the only two cities that I wanted to spend the next sort of foreseeable future were LA or, or DC. And to me, it didn't make a ton of sense to go to business school somewhere where, and we might've talked about this before, but to go somewhere where you knew you weren't going to stay. Yeah. I mean, obviously like if Stanford came calling, <laughs> I would have said, sure, oh, I'll go. twist my arm, I'll go to Stanford. Exactly. <laughs> right. But, but for the most part, um, I know people are big on the rankings thing and, 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 yeah. and all that, but, and LA and DC have, you know, they have great schools anyway, but, but, but to me, I wanted to, to be in a city and start building out a network and start getting involved a little bit and, and, and start building a life there. And so, um, LA and DC and ultimately chose LA because, um, well, it's sunny every day and, and the lifestyle is great, right? It's, so, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, even going I mean, through that. So yeah, there's so many options in choosing an MBA. You can go anywhere, right? I've looked at schools, for instance, like in, in Chicago, you know, out in all these different places. But to that point, I had the same similar thought, like, where do I want to live after? Because not that it'd be a waste, but it'd kind of be a waste to go to a school and not actually plan on staying in that city. Even for a bit, it seemed like it'd be a waste. Right. And the other thing is, is a lot of your classmates are going to stay in that city. That's Especially right. if it's a big city like New York, Chicago, LA, I would, I would imagine a, a pretty high percentage of them stay and yeah. if you know you're leaving, you kind of lose that. So I'm really, I'm excited because I'm, I'm sad that when business school is over, this whole experience is over. But, you know, a good percentage of our class is going to stay here and you're going to be able to kind of continue to, to yeah. build those relationships. Yeah. And so first, if you're your second year student, obviously at USC right now, we've kind of talked a little bit about internship. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But going into business school, not knowing kind of what you want to do. 
take me through that first year classes and also how you approach clubs and that sort of thing as you know coming from someone who doesn't know exactly what they want to do because a lot of my classmates in 2020 class like they they still don't know like you'd say right. that but I've, I've talked to a bunch of them they're yeah, not yeah. really i think i've met the ones they, that know what they want to do correct you probably yeah. met those ones that know and then right. like, even me like i want know i want to start a business but like which one like, only recently has been more decided but right take me through that first year for you well, I was terrified, first of all. Coming <laughs> in, like, first day, I was like, this is way too much. You got to know what are, who are all these people. Um, no, so I think my very first focus was let me make sure that I get off to a decent start with academics. Because, like, they always tell you that, that grades aren't important in business school, and, and that's, I think, true. But you still want to, you know, we've all been out of school for a few years coming into business school. So you still want to prove to yourself that, hey, I can do this. To a certain extent and just to feel good right you don't want to start off getting c's right that's, that's <laughs> right. not fun so i remember term one which was pretty intense i was i was very focused uh, on my classes and then um wanted to make sure i was i was starting to meet some good people um and i think once the the semester really kicked off and, and the second years came back i definitely knew i wanted to spend a lot of time checking out the clubs but i think my approach was was, so I ended up joining almost every club that, that the school has to offer. And, and my thing was, hey, I'm going to pay $50 or $100 to get access to this club. And, and in a lot of cases, I just didn't get involved at all. Yeah. Because I went to like one meeting. I'm not going to name the club. So there are certain <laughs> clubs where I went to one meeting and I was like, hey, this is not for me. Not quite, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's a handful that I really liked and, and um, wanted to get that exposure. And, and another thing I did was if... Like companies came to recruit on campus or, or they had th events like that. I just would sign up and go because I didn't know anything about any of this. So I would go and it'd be a big corporation and, and I'd be like, okay, well, this is just not, I think, culturally a good fit for me. And you just start, my thing was process of elimination. Just start narrowing down your options. What doesn't feel right, cross that off. Yeah. And that actually was, was great because I started crossing stuff off pretty quickly. And because you know you, you just you get a feel for something, and w once you get that feeling, you're you're like okay, this is yeah, not pre for me. pretty much no for right. that point. And I think first semester was very still. I felt like I was a little bit lost, um, but I didn't feel any pressure. I know a lot of people came in and, and first semester they were freaking out like if I don't have an internship by November, I'm I'm you know I'm dead and. I figured that that wasn't really the case, and and so over winter break is when I started to solidify really, and I think by that point I knew that I, I wanted to get involved in the the startup VC ecosystem of LA. Um, I really liked everything I'd seen, and and liked the people that were involved in the right right clubs at on campus, and so made that my focus, and that's definitely been the direction I've been headed in since then. So you kind of knew, you know, back in November that type of time frame. So. You had a few months in business school to figure out the academics, start meeting people, join the clubs, all these sorts of things. You kind of figure out VC startups. How did you approach it like second semester then heading into the all important internship of summer? Like what were you thinking? How did you approach that? That Because I mean, obviously my class now, we're just getting started here. We're going to be approaching that time period. We're all, we're all kind of wondering how to spend the time. Um, from your perspective, I'm just curious what you did. Yeah, it was tough actually because... Um you know, sometimes I'm not a super resourceful guy, and I think that hurt me at times because, well, for one, if you're looking to go into something more entrepreneurial like that, the the Kerr Center at, at, at Marshall is great, but 
their resources are usually more directed towards things like big tech and, and finance and consulting, right? So if you're looking to work for startups, if you're looking to work in venture, then you're more on your own. So I would check like MCSO, like, you know, our student page where, where yeah. they post job listings and and nothing really clicked for me and I didn't really know where to go. So I sort of wasn't being very proactive <laughs> and even into January, February. But one thing that really helped me was was I was involved with our entrepreneurship club and, and my role was to help with um, finding um, all these different startups to go visit for our annual Silicon Beach trek and I ended up reaching out to a whole bunch of them and that was a really helpful process because I didn't know that much about the the startup landscape in LA prior to that but yeah. just doing research and reaching out to companies you start to get to know that landscape and then when I was able to connect with a few and actually go and visit them then I also saw hey this is what it looks like on the inside this is kind of what happens on a day-to-day um, and especially for somebody like me that just hadn't had that exposure, it was really helpful. And it started getting my brain thinking in terms of now what industry, it, it, it was more before it was more just like, what do I want to do very broadly? And then it was more like, hey, like what industries maybe seem interesting? What sectors, um, what types of roles can I see myself playing? And and um, started reaching out a little bit and, and knew that um, I think... I told myself that I would not stress about it because if I needed to, I would work for a startup unpaid over the summer, yeah. which is rare. Like most people prioritize getting getting paid over the summer. It's obviously important, but yeah. but um, but I knew that if I had to, that, that I'd be willing to do that. And I think that took some of the pressure off. But but yeah, I got, I got offers from a couple startups, but it wasn't anything that seemed really exciting. And, and then really venture is more what I started to look at. Um, I do have a little bit of an investing background and I took a class in the spring that was really, it was basically a VC class and I've been telling the first years to, who are interested in VC to, to take this class, it's called investing in new ventures, but, but it was a, it was a really good way to get some exposure into the industry people in LA that the professor's very well connected and ended up, actually that's how I ended up finding my internship eventually, but but I would just reach out to, to these VC people and, and was able to meet with a few and, and just kind of pick their brains and see and learn just more about the process. Right. So the class was helpful from that perspective. But even for you know, Entrepreneur Venture Management Association, so EVMA, the, the club, how are you approaching finding different companies to like, bring to campus or get involved? Like, What were you doing? Just look at top companies, top startups in L.A.? Like, I mean... Yeah, it was, was tough. Like, like, so last year, I think it was more, we had a, so for our specific outreach uh, assignment with, with the club, it was more, um, we kind of had a list of companies that we were interested in. And then I, I knew a couple random here and there, but for the most part, it was a list of companies and I, I hardly knew any of them. <laughs> so I was just Googling, I was like, what is this going to do? But, but, um, but now I think, having gone through that and, and also having been been more involved in, in LA a little bit, it's different. But yeah, that's last year, that's really what it was about. It was just very high level learning the, the landscape. And besides that class, uh, from the club perspective or anything else, like what were some of the best either events or aspects of that first year that were you know most helpful for you, I guess, even in the, deciding your path or just things that you enjoyed? You know what I mean? Any major events we had on campus that was career related, that I went to, I got a lot out of. Okay. So we had round tables, we had summits, um, and anytime you had a chance to interact with the, the professionals that had come to, to 
be you know kind enough to give their time right I knew that those were just the best opportunities and and like I was saying before I'm not I'm not the most aggressive networker I'm not super resourceful but when it's in front of me I think I, I do know how to capitalize on that and, and that was kind of my approach and and not that I even really thought this all out, but I just, I, looking back on it, I realized all those events were really helpful in terms of getting exposure, in terms of understanding more about how, how these different companies operate, how different roles affect, um, you know, what you do on a day-to-day basis. Right. And then, so you mentioned from that from that uh, VC class, or investing in new ventures, yeah. you got a summer internship. I know we talked about this a little bit, but take me through that process and like what you what the internship was and like how was that yeah so so this was late in the game um i had actually thought that i was going to work um a different gig over the summer so when i was in the bay for c for c weekend we did a little vc trek up there okay we visited plug and play which is a huge accelerator up there and i connected with an with an sc alum who runs a, a blockchain vc fund um, it's called Elysium and, um, I ended up pitting it off with, with Peter, Peter is the, the name of the partner there. And, um, and I'm interested in blockchain and, uh, we were able to talk about it. And I think he was interested in working with me and said, Hey, why don't you come on for the summer? And I thought that's what I was going to do. And then ended up, um, like a week after that, we had a speaker in, in investing in new ventures, uh, this guy by the name of Jim Armstrong who is now my boss. And uh, he, yeah, he was a great speaker. He, he's, he's been a, in the industry for like 23 years now. And um, so I was reaching out to all the guest speakers and I reached out to Jim and didn't hear back, but I knew he had mentioned in class that he might be looking for an intern and like I perked up at that, right? <laughs> so then I was like, all right, it's time to go get this. So I emailed him, I think like three different times okay. and just was like, well, what do I got to lose, right? And, and just told him my story and, and why I was really genuinely interested in venture capital. And he finally responded and said that he would be willing to meet with me. Um, and we had, we had lunch and ended up, um, I think we had a good conversation and and he he thought that I might be uh, useful and but he still he wasn't sure what the internship was going to look like like it wasn't anything structured right, right. he didn't have a project in mind like here's just, run him through the internship program it wasn't that type of thing no not yeah. at all and he was like I'm going to be really busy this summer I, I go on vacation like I don't know you know just let's just stay in touch kind of thing and I was still like because I was about to go like, leave for prime like we're going to be in Asia for three weeks I'm like I don't know about this but then I was just thinking this is probably too good to pass up if it works out in any capacity. And finally, we, we started really late. So I started in July. Everybody else starts in June, maybe even May. So my internship was only five weeks um, back of the summer. I actually went to Vegas before that and played poker for three weeks, which was a nice change of pace from, <laughs> from the academics. But um, but yeah, did the did the internship and, and it was... It was a really good learning experience. It wasn't totally what I expected because a lot of days I come into the office and, and not be given something specific to do. So the associate there told me first day, it's like, hey, if you want to uh, be valuable in March, you got you to gotta hustle and you got to find stuff to add value to the firm because they're not going to hold your hand. And I said, okay, that's, that's fine. And just started doing some industry research and, and, and um, working on some of the decks that they were building and 
Um, the good thing was was when when Jim would would uh, be in the office, which was only probably half the days that I was there, he would um, call me in and he, he'd kind of go over some stuff with me. He'd have me sit in on meetings, take notes, and and it was just um, sitting in on those meetings with like high level entrepreneurs and VC people, and then it was like me, and I was like, oh, this is great. Like I just you know gonna soak this information up, but. But probably the most fun uh, aspect of, of the job was, was doing diligence. So um, he would get deals sent his way all the time. And he doesn't have time to bet all of it. So he'd send it to me and say, look, read this, uh, read this over, write me a memo, tell me if this is something interesting, should we pursue this? Uh, and if we do, then we'll, we'll schedule a call and like I'd get to participate in the calls, I'd get to ask some questions and I asked some really dumb ones, but you know, that's how you learn. So. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that was a lot of fun and, and just going to the meetings and, and, and just learning about the industries, I think was really exciting. Yeah, and you mentioned getting you know, getting different deals sent to you. I mean, is it like a couple a day, like 20 a day? I, mean, like I have no idea how to gauge how many that it is that you're looking through. No, for me, it was probably more like looking at maybe one a day or one every other day. But okay. if I'm looking at one, then, I, then I'm trying to spend a good amount of time doing research. It was probably like one every other day, but... Okay. But I'm trying to do some competitive analysis, uh, understand the market, you know, and, and trends and things like that. So I would dig reasonably deep into that. And to that point, were they, did they have like a clear either format or thing to help you learn what to look for in that? Or like, you just like, like, how do you evaluate it? From the class like USC help you like to know what to look for or, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, a little bit of everything. Like I, like I, I listened to my podcasts, right? That helps. I, I read a, a book. It's called um, Venture Deals. I have it upstairs. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one, right? Yeah. And and so just using different resources to learn like little snippets and just kind of try to put it together. And, and there wasn't like a, a, a format I followed specifically, but um, I was just trying to think about it in a analytical way and approach it that way. And, and um, would get feedback, I think, a little bit. Not even like a lot of feedback, but just I could sense like when a certain thing that I did was well-received or less well-received, and I'll kind of go from there. Right, and that internship was really quick. So it was five weeks long. And then yeah. after that, like, what was the, what happened then? Yeah, so so it's funny because I, I didn't know what was going to happen afterwards because <laughs> Jim had hinted that, that maybe at the beginning of the summer that maybe that I could stay on during the year because he, he had a similar experience where he, he went to... Um, to Austin for his MBA at, at Texas, Texas yeah. and so this was in the mid 90s and his summer between his first and second year he started working at uh, Austin Ventures which is, used to be the, the premier VC fund on there and he ended up liking it and ended up staying on for year two and he worked like full-time basically he was working like 40 hours a week year two and, and basically never left the industry since then so I think he wow he realized that that's kind of a path that you can take as an MBA if you want to get involved in venture. So, so we had talked about it and then um, it was my last week on the job and he didn't realize that was my last week. <laughs> like he didn't realize school, because school starts for us early, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Very early. Crazy early. And I told him and he was like, really? Like I thought you were here for a few more weeks. And then, and then he was like, well, why don't you stay on and, and we'll, we'll just keep kind of figure out your schedule and, and do like a once, twice a week kind of thing and then work remotely and... It was just a super informal conversation, but I think at that moment I was just like, okay, you know, like I'm not gonna, <laughs> You're gonna say not no to that. Yeah. yeah, so I, I knew I had a really, really good 
opportunity and, and I wanted to stay involved and it was a super easy conversation to have. So are you still now working with them? Yeah. So what's your workload like in terms of like hours with them or what type of stuff? Same things you're doing as before? Or? Yeah. So now I'm trying to be a little bit more focused in terms of what I'm working on. And, and right now the focus has been on, on hardware. So March, which is the, the, the firm, the name of the firm, they, they normally invest in um, enterprise software. That's their bread and butter. Okay. A lot of AI stuff. Um, but, but Jim, there's four different partners and everyone focuses on something slightly different, but Jim is, is probably the most experimental out of all four. So he just is in the process of launching a couple of different incubators, one in Austin that's focused on blockchain and then another in Pasadena that's focused on hardware. And he's got a portfolio company in, in Pasadena called supply frame and they're like a, uh, hardware component sourcing company it's okay. for like if you're producing stuff you're able to go on there and you're able to see get quotes and figure out how to bulk buy and things like that so wow. so he's basing this hardware incubator around around supply frame because they have this awesome space that they can use and um i i told him that that this is something that i would be interested in working on with him so really what we're doing right now is we're trying to figure out how investable the space is um, hardware is traditionally not something that, that they like in venture capital, right? Because it's just a piece of plastic. Right. And everything becomes a commodity. But if things are changing now because it's starting to become connected. So it's really like a Trojan horse. It's hardware, but it's really software, software. inside it, right? And, and so there have been some, some good exits lately in the space. And I think he's excited by it. And so I'm looking to... I'm in the process of kind of unworking on a on a project where i'm trying to compile some information about the space the trends that are happening what kind of vc funding are different companies getting and i'm actually going out to pasadena tomorrow and we're going to just look at some stuff all day wow yeah i mean what what an exciting opportunity it's to the point of going back to business school these things happen because of like oh let's go to business school and then venture capital you figure out you have that internship it's one of the amazing things like i'm already so excited about just being here and having different opportunities and talking to people it's it's very exciting. Even to that point of like hardware software combination, I went to the event last night with Jamie Siminoff from oh, yeah, Creative yeah. Ring. Like, How was it? It was it was really good. I mean, he's awesome. he seems like a very like not pretentious and not like oh my god, I just like sold this company for a billion dollars. Very like oh yeah, I just was an inventor and tinkered with this product, and then we did that, and we got the next step, and then took the next step, and then failed on Shark Tank, but then got exposure and just kept going from that. But that was the he actually one of the funny things he mentioned in that was. At Shark Tank, he had like a one run to do it. So basically like knocked on the door to do this like little stunt thing. They said if it doesn't like work or something doesn't go well, we're just going to go on to the next person. That worked. But then even his his demo on the show was like this live demo, whatever. He wasn't sure if the software was going to work because the video camera wasn't like working perfectly or whatever. Oh. But when he did it, it worked perfectly and said it was like the best shot he's ever had on that. So it worked out well for them, but that was combining software with hardware. Right, but they, they still passed on the deal, right? All they the passed on the deal, passed. right. Yeah. So they didn't, they didn't actually get the deal, unfortunately. And I actually remember watching that episode and thinking, well, this is a stupid idea. <laughs> so that shows you how much I know about investing. But, but I mean, to that point, it was the whole thing was, he was saying it was like making neighborhoods safer was their main driving, yeah. driving goal. Right. Um, and then I guess they were just far enough ahead where he was saying when more companies started making these things, they were far enough ahead where they can kind of ride the wave and be above it uh, versus other companies who may have maybe fought, you know, fell off essentially. But they also got like, 
at one point said 200 or 300 million in funding. Um, I don't know if that was a year or two ago or whatever. And then a few months ago, that's when Amazon acquired them for roughly a billion dollars. Um, and he mentioned, yeah, still being at the company. But that was just like, same thing. You know, marrying the hardware with the software is important. So you can just check your phone, but then the hardware, yes, you need it as well. So it's interesting space. Yeah. And, you know, to the Internet of Things and like smart objects, <laughs> for smart everything now, right? Yeah. It's, it's interesting, at least. I think it's exciting. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's definitely, to me, more appealing than just looking at a pure piece of software, especially if it's B2B a lot of times, because I don't have experience working in companies. Yeah. So software that's targeted towards companies, it's just not something I've used. Yeah. Right? So it's hard to identify with that. Right. You have no, like, oh, yeah, at work I use this thing, which exactly. this, this yeah. content management, whatever, systems and right. stuff like that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it is it is harder to do. I mean, because anything, anything hardware is just like with inventory and everything, you're just dealing with that. Like oh, they yeah. mentioned, it's capital yeah, intensive. And it's it's not necessarily always the most fun thing, but it, it can be exciting if you can get it right. And then, you, especially with consumer products, um, it's interesting from that perspective. But um, moving forward with uh, with the MBA, obviously you're you're in year two already. It's going quick, I assume. Uh, what are you looking at doing next? during the MBA and then also beyond like what types of things you think yeah well first of all it's moving way too quick <laughs> so I wish there was a year three but I don't think you know unless <laughs> I fail this year maybe I'll do that intentionally no yeah, but right. uh, um, you know I, I should uh, truthfully I should probably spend more time trying to plan ahead um, I'm, I'm just focused on on doing well in at my current job for now and and continuing to keep my eye out for other opportunities but but I'm really liking being involved in the venture space and I think I would like to stay in it at least in the short to medium term but I've also kind of thought about maybe going to work at a startup for a while too to see the other side of of the coin a little bit and yeah. And get that experience just working at a more traditional company even if it is a startup and and then kind of maybe going back to venture um i think but somewhere in the intersection of of startups and venture is definitely a place i'd like to spend some time in post mba um longer term i think um yeah and we talked about this before but but um i'm always interested in in, in exploring different lifestyle businesses um, longer term, I think that that's a, a great sort of um, option for having a balanced lifestyle, right? Where sometimes, I, like, I look at some of the guys in venture, and it's like it's awesome. I think it's fun what they're doing. They're they're they're, they're making great money, but it is pretty intense, right? Like my boss is in his fifties, and he's still like he's flying all over the place. Like he's on the road four or five days a week. Yeah, it's pretty intense. You know, um, so not that I mind that, but I think as you get older, sometimes you, you maybe want to want to have a more balanced uh, life. But but yeah, um, well, I would like to start a, a business at some point in my life for sure. Um, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. What I mean, just with figuring out from that first year you wanted to get in that VC, state, well, even startups kind of thing, like what about them is appealing to you? What is it about you know venture capital, about entrepreneurship that like for you is appealing? I think it's just exciting. It's there's a certain energy about it, right? And, yeah. and the people that are involved are there are people that are risk takers, and I've always considered myself that, but not in a in a bad way, just in a in a taking calculated risks, and I think um, willing to 
to bet on yourself, right? Because there's not a security blanket. Like when you work at a big company, you get your, you get your, 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 I don't know, your 401k, your health, your (laughs) insurance and and all those things, right? And you have a steady, steady pay, but, but I think maybe the work is a little less rewarding. And also you have less ownership of what you're doing. And I think it's harder for you to, to, to really be a mover and shaker and affect things. And I think when you're at a startup, you're, things are really dynamic and, and you, you can have a real impact on the direction of the company. And same thing in venture because you're always working with a small team of people. Um, you're making investments, you're making real decisions and, and, and the work you're doing has, yeah, has measurable results. Yeah. And to that point, with so many different companies, obviously, and so many different startups or companies, tech companies or whatever, like, is there, are there any, any companies you're just like enamored by or companies you're just like really curious by or done work on? I mean, a lot of people, obviously at this point in time, Tesla's getting so much everything, flack for everything, but it's still a very intriguing company and obviously Elon Musk and everything. But like, I'm just curious from your perspective, if there's anything that stands out to you or you're just like, huh? Oh man, uh, that's a good question. I, don't know. I, I love. Uh, I I get a big kick out of these scooter companies now. Okay, yeah, and, and just and I think I mean the the scooters are, are fun, but I think it's more about thinking about transportation and mobility and, and and how things will look different because obviously, especially in LA, we have a huge uh, traffic issue, right? And, and and I think the the fossil fuel issue and and we we're seeing a huge shift in terms of things going electric and things being automated and are we solving the last mile problem and, and all these different things that are coming in, into play. And I think that whole space is really exciting. It's not something I have any expertise in at all. Um, <laughs> either. And I want to quickly give a shout out to, 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 um, to a company, uh, Thor, Thor Trucking. Okay. They're a startup. They're actually about to start raising a lot of money. Uh, uh, one of my good friends from college is a senior uh, executive there on the okay. team and they do, um, they're building electric trucks for commercial use. Really? And I just had dinner with them the other night and, and got to hear all about it. And they're doing some really cool stuff. So, yeah, there's just so much innovation happening in that space. And I think it's a really exciting time. Yeah, and to, and to that point, I remember it was Gary Vaynerchuk or someone talking about even like Uber in the early days. Like, what is it? Like, what actually is it? And it's one of those things where, yeah, you could take a taxi. You could drive yourself. You could whatever, bike, whatever. But the ability to have an app or whatever company that literally saves you time, like just gives you time back, like people pay for that. Even if it's only a few minutes, like people pay for those extra minutes and to the point of like solving the last mile problem or that type of thing, it just makes you think, or at least makes me think of, yeah, where are people spending money to save time and how does that continue, that trend continue? Because even like in B-School here, I find myself ordering groceries or ordering food just to save time and for that headache all the time but like what else is there you know there's like so many different things but it, it's just curious to me all of it it's the same kind of point as you're saying like it's just it's a fascinating one to see what people can create when they like, work together and have an idea and make it come to life um and then two just just seeing like what things are not what problems are not being solved yet right. there's, there's just so many of them out there um one of the things i'm looking at is obviously careers with podcast with a, another thing I'm looking at but um, also I'm kind of curious your perspective I know you mentioned a little bit of AI like just just spitball on here where do you think AI and like machine learning that type of stuff is going to go with, with how's that going to affect people so like I, I mean I'm, I'm not qualified to talk about this no at worries. all but, just but really curiosity. I think it's just a way to, to take uh, a, a lot of data 
and figure out a way to make it intelligent and figure out a way to turn it into something really useful. And that's why you always hear about companies, so much of the value that that's ascribed to a company is the, the, the data that they have, right? And, and I think as companies figure out how can I use this data to make, to, to learn something um, useful, but I think you're just seeing it. You're, I think you're already seeing it in, in basically every facet, every facet of your life. And in companies are like AI is not some magical thing where it's going to be a robot, robot one day that, that everybody, it's, it's more just an iterative process. Right. And it's, it's about, um, it's a, yeah, it's about making, uh, taking that data and, and figuring out. Are, are there any, cause obviously you're in the tech and like entrepreneurship, but that, that's type of stuff. Is there any, Sources that you you like you enjoy that you suggest to people. You yeah, mentioned venture deals, which yeah, I, I got it. My my favorite podcast is probably um, it's called Invest Like the Best. It's it's a little bit at the intersection. It's more I guess it's probably more finance. It's finance, tech, investing, probably at the intersection of all three. But but it's ran by or it's hosted by a really sharp guy. I think he's an asset fund manager. Um, and he, he has guests come on that, that range from people in venture to people in, in the hedge, hedge fund or private equity world. And, and they just cover a whole lot of stuff that, that, um, is, is both useful and interesting. And so that's a good one. And then more VC specific. I really like the 20 minute VC. Yeah. Got that on there. <laughs> that's a really good one. And then I'm also a big fan of this week in startups. Um, so those three are definitely sort of in my normal rotation. And, um, as far as books, there's some good ones for sure. Man, I'm so bad with remembering the <laughs> names okay. of books. You know what I mean? But yeah. yeah. I mean, like, have you read like the lean startup? Yeah. Like, like some yeah, of those, yeah, yeah. the classics, like that one for, well, that's one of the classics. Um, it was like innovators dilemma is an interesting one with Clayton Christensen, Clayton Christensen, the, uh, like Harvard business school professor or something. Um, we can always add them to the show notes at the end, by the way, if you think of some more. I'll okay. Just add them to the but Lean Startup's a classic. Anyone that's interested in entrepreneurship should definitely read that. Yeah. And there's another, what was it? Um, there's another, yeah, there's another one like uh, with uh, related to entrepreneurship. It's one of those things where do you want to be like a manager or an entrepreneur, or, like different ones. I forgot the name of it, but that's one I also always suggest to people. Um, and to that point, other, there's some movies too. Some like documentaries that really... And anything from that perspective that you remember specifically? I mean, for me, I always got hyped up off social network just because like that movie is like, it's good. <laughs> it's like a classic. Yeah, yeah. And it's entertaining. <laughs> it's just entertaining um, too. I'm trying to think movies and books. Um, I'll have to get back to you on that yeah. one. No, that's yeah. all good. Um, one of the last questions, this is the last question. I'm always curious on what people think makes for a great career. So your personal, what do you think makes for a great career? I think um, doing something that doesn't feel like work. Um, something you're passionate about and something you get excited about waking up in the morning to do. And I think it's really tough to spend your whole life doing something that you don't enjoy, right? You just get burnt out, you get tired of it. I think it affects the rest of your life. And um, if you enjoy what you're doing, then it doesn't feel like work. And obviously there's constraints that people have, you know, not everyone can do what they want and there's, there's financial reasons to do certain things. But, but yeah, I think that's um, ideally at least how I like to look at it. Right. Chris, uh, we'll, we'll definitely chat more, of course, throughout the program. But thank you so much for the time today. I appreciate it. Um, I, I enjoyed this a lot. There's a lot more things 
we'll eventually we'll eventually talk about but this was great thanks for the time man i just appreciate you uh, having me on here yeah, so, yeah. great time Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. The show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. Support the show at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And in iTunes, please do leave a rating and review and subscribe to the show. It just helps more people find it. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.